Well, we're in a series walking through the book of 1 Corinthians, and so if you've got your Bible, make your way uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is where we'll be this morning. Uh, Now, I don't know how big you are into IHOP, but even if you're not very big into IHOP, maybe you remember what they did a few summers ago back in 2018 Uh, When they announced on social media that on this specific day in June, they were going to be changing their name from IHOP uh, to IHOB with a B. And they didn't tell us what that B was going to stand for. They just said on this specific day in June, when they make the name change, they're going to tell us what the B uh, stands for. And so uh, when I heard this, I was curious, you know, because it's not every day that a national chain changes their name. And so Uh, After a few weeks of making us all wait in suspense with bated breath, they announced on that day in June uh, that they were changing their name from the International House of Pancakes uh, to the International House of Burgers. Uh, And I remember uh, when this happened, just talking like, like, really? This is really what you're going to go for? You're really going to platform your burgers? I mean, they just got blasted for this. People just roasted them uh, over this. And uh, it, it was justified, right? Because uh, I'll just be honest, there's, there's never been a time in my life when I've been in the mood for a burger and thought, you know what's really going to hit the spot? IHOP. They're really going to serve me a good burger. And, and I'm sure you haven't either, right? We know IHOP does one thing well, overpriced breakfast food. Now, To be clear, they don't even come close to doing it as well as Waffle House does, but that's what they do, right? That's what they do is overpriced breakfast food, uh, not burgers. And and of course, this was just kind of a marketing gimmick to promote their new burgers and try to drum up interest in them and get people to try them. Uh, But I'd say even as a marketing gimmick, it really didn't work because I don't know anybody that ended up trying one of their burgers Uh, or anybody that went to IHOP because of that, it really just kind of got them laughed at. Well, here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is going to circle back and come back to what he announced to us at the beginning of the letter. He's going to come back to uh, explicitly focus on and remind us of what he says is of first importance, what should be central in our lives as Christians, what we should be known for, what we should center our lives around, the gospel. And he's going to do that because all of us have the tendency to kind of get bored with the gospel, to think it doesn't really work and that we've got to dress it up with other gimmicks and we've got to try other messages and go after different things. But the call on our lives as Christians is to stay centered on the gospel, to stay focused on the gospel, to keep it in first place, to stick to the only message that we're to be known for as Christians, the only thing we're really called Uh, to do well. And so let's see this together now. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to look at the first 11 verses. Starting in verse 1, the Word of God to us. It speaks to us like this. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, 
He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. So three things we see about the gospel in this passage. The gospel is central, the gospel is historical, and the gospel is personal. The gospel is central, historical, and personal. First, the gospel is central. So if you remember, way back when, all the way back in chapter 2, Paul told us that he decided to know nothing among the Corinthians except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then uh, ever since then, in this letter, he spent chapter after chapter after chapter applying the gospel, Jesus Christ and him crucified, to every issue and problem that the Corinthians were facing. But now here in chapter 15, as he begins to wrap this letter up, he comes back to explicitly remind us and focus on what is a first important and just get explicit about the gospel. He, he tells us in verse 1, he wants to remind us of the gospel he preached to them. And notice what he says here, that the gospel uh, is not just something that happened in the past. It's not just something for the past. He says the gospel is something in which you received uh, in the past tense. It's something in which you stand right now in the present. And it's something by which you're being saved, which is going to be completed in the future. It points to the future, which means that the gospel is for all of life. So often we operate with the the misconception that the gospel is really just kind of the entry point into Christianity. It's how you get into the door. We, We operate like the good news of the gospel is that Jesus forgives all of your past sins and he wipes the slate clean and he gets you on the team and he gets you back to balance zero Uh, And then it's really up to you to do enough good stuff to stay in his good graces and to stay on the team and to keep the slate clean. We, We operate like the gospel is what gets you in, it gets you into the house, but then if you really want to grow as a Christian, you've got to move on to other things. You've got to take a class or learn doctrine or listen to a podcast or read a book or start serving or or whatever it might be. But Paul is saying that the gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian life. The gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The gospel is not just the door that gets you into the house that is the Christian life. The gospel is the house that you live and you move and you have your being in. The gospel is not just the diving board that gets you into the pool of Christianity. The gospel is the pool that you swim in. The gospel is not just for unbelievers. The gospel is for Christians too. In fact, in all of the letters of the New Testament that are written to churches, the gospel is being preached to the church, to a bunch of Christians. And and so if you want to grow, you grow not by moving on to other things, but by going deeper into the gospel. Because the gospel is something in which you stand, right now, in the present. Uh, Again, most of us kind of default back into thinking that the way we really grow as a Christian uh, is through the law, through really knuckling down and trying hard to start doing good things and stop doing bad things, And that's just not the case. That would be like taking the apples off the branches of an apple tree and stapling on oranges and and thinking that you've made an orange tree. That would be like going shark hunting with a spear gun and shooting the spear at the shark's fin because that's the only thing that you can see above the water and thinking that's going to kill the shark. Uh, This 
this idea. So often we just focus on the behaviors we can see and think that the way we're really going to change those and grow is through more law, more encouragements to do better, hearing more commandments. And look, it just doesn't work. The law can tell you what to do, but it cannot give you the power to do it. We are not saved by grace and then changed by the law. We are saved by grace and we're changed by grace. We grow by grace as the truth of the gospel begins to get down into the idols and the loves and the desires of our heart and begins to rework and recreate and reshape them. And so look, you stand in the gospel right now by believing its promises for your life, by believing that your acceptance with God is totally secure, not because you've read your Bible enough this week or you've had a good enough week, but because you are united to Jesus, that His righteousness and that your righteousness and acceptance before God is His righteousness and acceptance that He has freely given to you, that you are so united to Jesus that the only way God the Father could stop loving you now would be to stop loving Jesus, His Son, that you're fully, freely, and forever forgiven of all of your sins and completely right with God because of what Jesus has done. You stand in the gospel by not moving on to it for for other things, but by pressing deeper into the good news of the gospel, working it deeper and deeper into your heart, believing its promises for your life. You stand in the gospel by working from God's acceptance and love and favor, not for God's acceptance and love and favor. This is why Martin Luther said that it's most necessary that we know the gospel well, that we teach it to others, and that we beat it into our heads continually. And and then Paul says in verse 3 that the gospel is of first importance. It is primary. It's central. We're meant to uh, keep it in first place and center our lives around it and build our lives uh, upon it. And look, we all need to hear this warning because... And it's so easy for us to get bored with the gospel and to move on to other things and start getting really excited about those and start yeah-butting the gospel for other things. Like, yeah, the gospel is great and all, uh, but have you ever heard of Calvinism? Like, I really started to grow as a Christian when I understood the doctrines of Calvinism. Yeah, yeah, the gospel, it's so awesome, but when I understood the Enneagram, like, it really felt like my spiritual life and my knowledge of myself really took off. Yeah, of course, the gospel, it's so amazing. But, but man, this new podcast I've started listening to, I, I feel like putting these principles into practice has really unlocked my spiritual life. Uh, I was in a store the other day and uh, had to give my email address for something. And so uh, a guy who was kind of listening in overheard me giving my email address. And so he started asking questions like, what's Veritas? And so he eventually found out that I was a pastor And uh, him finding out that I was a pastor led him to let me know that he was a Christian before uh, jumping into him sharing with me all of his political views down the line, uh, like that's what really unites us and brings us together uh, as Christians. And this is not the first time that this has happened, where I'm just kind of minding my own business and somebody finds out that I'm a pastor, uh, and they just kind of gladly jump into sharing all of their political views uh, with me. And I, I've never asked for this. I've never been like, yeah, I'm a pastor. Hey, how are you going to vote in the next election? 
I, like, I don't know if it's something with my face or, or whatever that just looks inviting, but they just feel the freedom to uh, just give me what they think about every issue down the line and just barrage me for 20 minutes straight, uh, even when I don't contribute my own views uh, to the conversation at all. And so, like I said, this is not the first time that this has happened, but this last time that it happened, I, I kind of st- stood back and thought for a second, like it kind of hit me. You know, this person finds out I'm a Christian and a pastor, and they, they want to profess to be a Christian, and the first thing they do when they find out I'm a Christian and a pastor uh, is not to talk about what Jesus is doing in their life, but to get just amped out of their mind to share all of their political views with a total stranger, uh, no matter what that stranger might think about those views, thinking that's the basis of our common ground as Christians, and that was what really should jazz us up as Christians. That's what I mean. We, we all have the tendency to get bored with and just assume the gospel so we can yeah, but it and move on to other things. Uh, whether it's your pet theological issue, your pet political issue, or whatever it is, but, but the call on our lives is to stay centered on the gospel, to keep it primary, to keep it in first place, to not assume it or move on from it, uh, but to keep it central. And so that obviously leads to the question, what is the gospel, right? If the gospel is supposed to be of first importance, if we're supposed to keep it primary and central in our lives, what is it? Well, that's what Paul shows us next in this passage. Not only is the gospel meant to be central, uh, the gospel is also historical. Look at verses 3 and 4 again with me. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This is the Gospel. If you want a really clear, kind of essential, simple definition of what the Gospel is, this is the Gospel, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, to fulfill the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day, again, to fulfill the scriptures. That's the core of the gospel. Now, it's a really tightly packed definition, so let's expand a little bit on what this means. Uh, the first thing here is Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. His parents weren't Mary and Joseph Christ. Uh, Christ is a title. It's an office. It means that He's the Messiah. He's the King and the Savior that the Old Testament promised. And in this office, as the Christ, as the Messiah and the King, Paul says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, Jesus died a real historical death on a Roman cross, but it's the significance of that little phrase in here, for our sins, that makes all the difference. Because Jesus dying for our sins means that Jesus died as our substitute in our place so that we would not have to. He had no sins of His own to be dying for, so when He died on the cross, He was dying for ours. He took the judgment of God that our sins deserve so that we would not have to, which means that anyone now who trusts in Jesus can have all of their sins, past sins, present sins, future sins you haven't even committed yet, fully, freely, and forever forgiven by Jesus, and you can be brought back into a completely right relationship with God. This is what it means that Christ died for our sins. God is not the God who gives us a second chance. God is a Savior who saves us fully 
and completely. And, and again, Paul says this happened in accordance with the Scriptures. Jesus' death was foretold and promised and pictured and patterned and prophesied all throughout the Old Testament. And this just shows the faithfulness of God to keep His promises. And, and Paul says not only did Christ die, Christ was buried. Again, pointing to the fact that this is a real death. Jesus experienced death like all human beings who die do. Uh, his soul was separated from his body, and his body was laid in a tomb, but that's not the end of the story. Uh, Paul says on the third day, he was raised from the dead. He rose again from the dead. But the gospel is not just that Jesus died. The gospel is that Jesus died and then rose from the dead, never to die again. And that changes everything. Because the gospel is not actually the gospel if Jesus just died. Now, I've heard it put helpfully like this. Say you committed a crime and the, the punishment uh, for that crime, the judgment that's rendered against you for that crime, uh, is that you're going to have to spend 10 years in prison for that. Well, how do you know that the debt for that crime is paid for in full and that you've satisfied the demands of justice? Well, after 10 years, when they open the prison doors and let you walk out as a free man or a free woman, uh, you know that crime is paid in full. Well, in Romans 6, Paul says that the wages of sin, the punishment that our sin earns, is death. And, and so Paul says here in 1 Corinthians that Jesus died for our sins, that he took that penalty, that death that you and I deserve for our sins to pay for them and satisfy the demands of justice. Well, how do we know that the debt for our sins and that the justice for our sins was actually satisfied and paid for in full? Well, when three days later the prison doors of death opened and Jesus walked back out from death into life. You see, if the cross is like a check paying for your sins, the resurrection is the proof that the check cleared, that your sins are still in the grave because Jesus is not. Jesus' it is finished on the cross is answered by God the Father's yes, it is in the resurrection. Listen, if you could outsend the cross of Jesus, Jesus would still be in the grave. But, but since He's not in the grave, you can know that you are not in your sins. You are now in Jesus. And Romans 8 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. This is the good news that the Gospel Proclaims. It's why we want to center uh, around it, because Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose from the dead in accordance with the Scriptures. And the, the way Paul builds this out here is by focusing on how the Gospel is historical. I hope you notice this text didn't start with once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away. Like Paul's grounding these events in real history, saying this really happened, and if you, Paul says, hey, if you don't want to take my word for it, there were lots of other people that saw Jesus alive after he had risen from the dead. He appeared to all the other apostles, he appeared to James, he appeared to Peter, and he appeared to more than 500 people at one time, uh, many of whom are still alive, Paul says, even though some have fallen asleep and have died. Now, listen, Paul saying that means he's telling the Corinthian church, hey, if you doubt this, a lot of those people are still alive. You can go talk to them and see for yourself about what they saw. That's not something you encourage people to do if you think you're, you're pushing out and parroting a made-up story. You know, every year around this time, 
around Easter, uh, somebody will go on PBS or wherever and start to kind of float out the theory that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. The disciples just kind of came together after his death and decided that they were going to say he had risen from the dead to carry on his legacy and his memory in their hearts uh, and keep spreading his message and his good news. Which when you first hear that, it's like, okay, maybe that could have happened until you realize that all of the apostles were viciously persecuted and murdered for their faith in Jesus and their preaching of the resurrection, them preaching that he had really risen from the dead. Uh, I mean, many of them were beheaded. Uh, John was reportedly boiled in oil. Uh, Peter was reportedly crucified upside down. Andrew reportedly had his skin flayed off. That's not the sort of death that you submit to for something that you made up and that you willingly know is a lie. Other people will say, well, uh, it's not that the disciples made this up on purpose. It's that they were so Uh, filled with grief after Jesus' death. Jesus' death was just such a shock to them that they didn't see coming that that their grief just caused them to hallucinate and think that they had seen him risen from the dead when really they hadn't. It was just a hallucination. Which again, sounds like, yeah, maybe that could have happened, but, but Paul says 500 people saw Jesus resurrected from the dead at the same time. Now, I don't know, I don't care what sort of drugs you have access to, 500 people don't have the same trip or hallucination at the same time. Uh, Again, Paul's grounding these events in real history. But but the reason all of these theories continue to pop up about how the resurrection didn't actually happen is because if the resurrection didn't happen, then Christianity is really just about uh, some inspiration to try and live a moral life. If the resurrection didn't happen, then Jesus is just another important historical figure like a president that, you know, maybe it's important to learn a few things about, maybe not. But, but if the resurrection didn't happen, then you really don't have to submit to Jesus' claims over your life. You can really just kind of pick and choose what you like uh, from his message. If he didn't rise from the dead, the message of Christianity is just be kind to everybody. Try to love and accept people. Be nice to the people that you meet, which sounds really good in our day and age. And look, you can do all those things and still go to hell dead in your sin. But, but this, sort of, uh, this sort of idea, this sort of teaching about Christianity really suits our desires for spirituality and faith because then if this is the case, we can just pick what we like and leave off what we don't like, like frozen yogurt flavors of Jesus' teaching And we still get to be the Lord of our life. We still get to call the shots and make the decisions and be in control. But the resurrection means that that Christianity does not work that way. Because if Jesus is truly risen from the dead, and He is, then He's Lord of the entire universe, and your whole life belongs to Him. Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that He said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about what any of what he said? If Jesus rose from the dead, he's the Lord of the whole universe, and you've got to give your life to him. His claims are totalizing. You can't take what you like and leave off what you don't. You've got to give everything over to him. Now listen, I know there there might be some questions that you might have about aspects of the Bible or about Jesus' teaching, but, but holding out on giving your life to Jesus until you get all the answers to those is not the right way to go about it. 
Because the real question you have to answer is, did Jesus rise from the dead? If he did, then again, he's Lord, so you've got to give your life over to him even before you get all of your questions answered and checked off and tucked away. And you submit your life to him before you get your questions answered. You believe in order to understand. You don't wait until you fully understand to believe. And then second, the gospel being historical means that Christianity is good news, not good advice. Do you know the difference? Good advice is things like, hey, you should eat uh, more vegetables, you should try to get eight hours of sleep a night, you should read more books, Uh, you should try to be more present with people when you're around them and not be on your phone when you're with other people. All of that's great advice that if you apply that to your life, it's going to benefit your life. It's probably going to do things, uh, make things go well for you. But that's not what the gospel is. That's not what Christianity is. Uh, That's good advice. And good advice is all about you, how you can tool and hack and and, uh, manage your life to make it better. But but again, that's not the gospel. The the idea of gospel, the word gospel, good news, it comes from this idea of a herald. And so back in the day, um, if if your town or your country would go to war with another town or another country and, and you're Uh, country won that war, uh, a herald would come back to your town or your city and would preach the gospel, would announce the good news that your army was coming back victorious and that your army had won the victory. Well, if that were to happen, what do you do in response to that? You don't strap on your sword. The, The battle's already been fought and won, right? You believe the good news, In contrast, good advice is like Paul Revere riding through town and saying the British are coming. That's really good and important advice because that means you need to get ready for war, right? But but that's not the gospel. The gospel is that the war has already been won. And that's how Paul is presenting the gospel here. It's good news, not as good advice. Christ died for our sins. He's buried. He's raised from the dead. Hundreds of people saw him risen from the dead. Here is what has happened. What do you do in response to that? You believe the good news. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a pastor and a preacher in London in the 1900s, and he said that he would always ask people in London, uh, hey, are you a Christian? And he said if they said, well, you know, I'm trying very hard to be a Christian, uh, he said that's when I know they don't yet understand Christianity at all. Because that's treating Christianity as good advice. I try hard. I read my Bible, I give, I serve, I go to church, I do all these things, and hopefully if I do them well enough, God will be happy with me and he'll let me into heaven. But again, that's not Christianity. Listen, the the gospel is not about what you and I do for God. The gospel is about what God has done for us. The gospel is not love God and love people. The gospel is God has done something to save us because he has so loved us. In John 6, some people come to Jesus and they ask him, hey, Jesus, what do we need to do to be doing the works of God? And do you know what Jesus says to them? He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in me, in the one whom God has sent. That's the good news. What do you do in response to the good news You believe in Jesus and his resurrection. You entrust your life over to him. And so the gospel's central. The gospel's historical. Finally, Paul shows us the gospel is personal. Look back again at verses 8 through 11 with me. He says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, 
he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. And so here Paul gets personal, and he says, last of all, like one untimely born, he appeared, Jesus appeared to me. Uh, before he met Jesus, Paul was uh, a, really a religious terrorist. He was out killing Christians because he thought they were a threat to the true people of God. But in Acts chapter 9, when he was on his way to Damascus to kill more Christians, the risen Jesus uh, appeared to him and saved him and totally changed his life and transformed his story and turned his life completely around. And this is what Paul's recounting, almost with this sense of wonder, like, this shouldn't be the case. I shouldn't be a Christian. I don't deserve this. I was like one who was born late, born out of time. I'm late to the party. I shouldn't even be here. I don't deserve this. But the key phrase is found in verse 10, the grace of God. Grace is, means unearned and undeserved favor. Even though Paul had been killing Christians, had done nothing to earn or deserve the love and favor of God, God freely gave it to him in Jesus. Jesus appeared to him, and when Jesus' grace broke into his life, it changed everything about Paul's life and Paul's story. Paul went from murdering Christians to preaching the gospel and planting churches and spending his entire life uh, as a missionary so that more people would come to know uh, Jesus. God's grace turned him from a murderer into a missionary. That, that's how powerful that the gospel is. Paul talks more about this in Galatians. He says in Galatians 2.20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When, when Jesus' grace broke into Paul's life, Paul saw that Jesus had died for him and that had, Jesus had united Paul to himself, that he had crucified his sins and his sinful nature with him in his cross and he had buried it with him in his grave and then he had gotten up from the grave and taken Paul with him and left his sins in the grave uh, so that Paul would no longer have to carry them. And when Paul got this, it changed everything uh, about his life. Notice the personal verbs that Paul uses here. He says, Jesus loved me and he gave himself up for me. The gospel changes everything when it breaks into your life because it shows you that even though you were a sinner, while you were still a sinner, God so loved you that he moved heaven and earth and died on a cross to bring you back to himself and bring you into right relationship with him forever. And when your heart gets hit with that love and that free grace and that free forgiveness and acceptance in spite of everything that you've done and that there was nothing you did to earn it, then it changes everything. You can't help but want to live for Jesus after that happens. This is what Paul's talking about in verse 10. Look at it again. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So God's, Jesus' grace broke into Paul's life, and he goes from 
uh, being a persecutor to then uh, being a missionary, and he endures shipwrecks and beatings and sleepless nights and persecutions. He's left for dead multiple times. Humanly speaking, he endured more than any of the other apostles uh, as he went to spread the name and the fame of Jesus all over the known world at the time. Uh, but, but notice again the phrase that he uses, it wasn't me, it was the grace of God that was working through me. Now look, this means that God's grace is not just pardon. It's power. It's not just forgiveness, it's fuel. Dallas Willard says grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. What, what that means is that grace is not opposed to hard work, it's opposed to thinking that that hard work earns you right standing in favor with God. But the sort of irony and the reality is, is that when you actually grasp God's grace in your life, it will actually cause you to work harder than just hearing commands and trying to earn God's favor ever could. Uh, many of you know I've always loved to read, uh, and in high school and in college, I was assigned uh, a lot of great books to read in class. Things like um, uh, Heart of Darkness, The Iliad and the Odyssey, Tale of Two Cities, Scarlet Letter, uh, stuff from Shakespeare, stuff from Ernest Hemingway, stuff from Cormac McCarthy, like on and on I could go. Really, really great books. And uh, even though I loved to read at the time, for, for whatever reason, I didn't want to read these books. I don't know if it was just because I was being judged on those and somebody assigned them to me, uh, but I didn't want to read these books, so I didn't uh, read them. Uh, I didn't pay attention in class. I didn't do the reading assignments that were given. I did what most of us did, and I just got the cliff notes so that I could pass the test. And, and so I was commanded to read these books. I was going to be judged on whether or not I had read these books, but all of that was still not enough to make me actually read them. Uh, but now, over the past few years, I've really been almost on this kind of quest to uh, go to used bookstores in, in different places, like when we go on a vacation or something, and try to find good copies of these books uh, that I was assigned in high school and college and get them and actually read through them for the first time. And, and I'm, like, I'm loving them. They're incredible. I, I know it's nerdy. I really don't care. Because the irony is, like, I had to pay for college, and I was assigned to read these books so that I could pass the classes and get a job uh, that would pay me money so I could, you know, use that money in my free time. And now I go to work, and I use the money that I'm earning from my job to buy these books and read these books in my free time that I didn't read when I was in college. And, and look, I work harder now than I did back then. I have stayed up late, sacrificing sleep because I'm enjoying reading through these books so much. Again, I know it's nerdy. I really don't care. Um, but, but what changed? My relationship to these books changed, right? Now that I don't have to have the threat of judgment over my life, it's not dependent on whether or not I'm going to pass this class if I read them, I, I'm able to see the beauty in them. When the threat of, and fear of judgment has been taken away, I'm just able to enjoy them for what they really are. That's what the gospel does. Because when you see that Jesus has paid the penalty in full for your sins and the way you failed to keep the law and that because of what He has done, there's no judgment hanging over your head anymore. There's nothing left that you have to pay, nothing you have to fear. And you, you actually want to do what the law says. When that grace hits in your life, you want to follow Jesus. You want to do what He commands you to do. One poem says it like this. It says, to see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear His pardoning voice changes a slave into a child 
and duty into choice. That's what the gospel does. The gospel gets down into your heart and begins to rewire and rework it and stir up love for Jesus so that more and more you begin to say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to go wherever he says. I want to do whatever he calls me to do because you're just so overwhelmed with the wonder of, oh my gosh, why would God save me? Why would God love me? Why would God do this for me? But he did and he does and he has. Like grace turns duty into a choice. And look, if that doesn't describe your relationship with God, what I want to hold out to you this morning, the invitation I want to give you is that it can. The gospel's personal. It is a personal invitation to you. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul's again recounting this story, and he talks about it. He says, Galatians, you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I was persecuting the church of God, and how I was advancing beyond all everybody else because I was so zealous for uh, this religion. But then Jesus' grace broke in and he says, God was pleased to reveal his son Jesus to me. And again, everything changed. And that's what I want to hold out to you this morning. That what Paul said in Galatians 1 can be true for you too. You can have a former life. How incredible would that be for you to be able to say, yeah, you've heard of my former life. I was doing this. I was addicted to that. I was enslaved to this. But then Jesus broke into my life and changed absolutely everything about my story. So no matter what you've done, no matter what sin you might be bringing in here, no matter what you're bringing to the table, you can have a former life. Listen, Paul was literally killing Christians. I don't think whatever sin you're bringing to the table stacks up with that. You're not too far gone. You are not too damaged. You are not too dirty. You can have a former life. If your sin, if you could outsend the cross of Jesus, Jesus would still be in the grave. But since he's not in the grave, you can know that this invitation of the gospel is for you. It's here for you if you want it. You can have a former life. The gospel is central, it's historical, and it's personal. It's for you. Believe the good news. Let me pray that we would. Jesus, thank you for the reminder of what's of first importance. Thank you for the good news that we're gathering together this morning to celebrate not what we've done for you, but what you have done for us. Not to celebrate how much we've loved you, but to celebrate how much you have loved us. Thank you, Jesus, that you died for our sins were buried, that you rose on the third day, that new life and eternal life with you would be ours forever. God, I pray you would help us. You would help us to keep the gospel central. You would help us to keep it as a first importance and primary in our lives. Help us to not move away from it. Help us not assume it to think we need to focus more on other things. Help us not to get excited about other things gimmicks or or whatever it might be. Help us to stay focused on the essential news uh, of what you've done for us. God, I pray even now as we come to the table, would you help us to celebrate the gospel, to celebrate that you poured out your blood and you gave up your life so that we could be forgiven and right with you forever, so that we could know you. 
Jesus, would you help us to just taste and see that at your table this morning? Would you help us to taste and see that you're good, that you love us, and that you are for us? Help us to believe, uh, even in spite of all of the ways that the devil might tempt us, uh, things might distract us, help us to believe the gospel. In your name, amen.